I helped build $2 billion businesses. I was responsible for every dollar of the $71 million that we build in four years. I think your message gets misunderstood a lot. You can scale solopreneurship, but why recreate the life that I'm running from? I think you learn a lot about your audience when you can talk to them without any pressure of making money. In a world where every personality is becoming more and more like a WWE wrestler, our politicians, our athletes, our singers, it's just such attention seeking. You may think me sharing a picture of me and my wife going hiking is just me showing you what we're doing, but it fits into the narrative. We're getting outside in the middle of the day on 1130 on a Tuesday to go hiking in a beautiful park. That is a benefit of building this business. You want to take someone who's in a negative present and you want to show them the positive future. I'm both underconfident and overconfident at the same time, which is a weird thing. Like there are days when I wake up and I'm like, this is all going to go away very quickly someday. Like I have a lot of fear around that. If you think that you're gonna hit like a certain revenue or income milestone and suddenly feel like safe and secure, I can tell you with confidence that it doesn't happen. Don't hammer me over the head to try and make a sale. Hammer me over the head with value. But if you're going to do that, set the expectations up front. We all have valuable information to share. The vehicle in which we share it matters. You said you live like in upstate New York and you post pictures of farmers market. Do you actually are off grid? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Like, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself off grid. Like, we have electricity and Wi Fi and shit, but like, I live in a, in a mountain town called Accord. There's like 552 people here and I don't have cell phone service. So, power goes out, the generator comes on, hopefully, the internet comes back on, but I don't think it'll happen today. It's not too bad. Why did you move from Tennessee? Were you in Tennessee? I was. I lived in New York City twice, LA twice, San Francisco, Boston. I've lived everywhere. We moved to Nashville as like a pandemic thing because I had just started my business or was like in year two. And we moved there because we we're like, oh, low taxes. Heard it's a cool city and we just didn't like it. It's a great city for some people. It's just not the right city for us. So, well, thank you for doing this, man. I appreciate it. I think this is going to be fun. Yeah, awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. I do have like 20 questions I want to ask. You have a lot. And this so is I'm an open first book. time. I'm an open book. So ask, ask anything you want. I, I will, I'll give you the real legitimate answer versus like some marketing answer. All right, let's go for the real legitimate answer on this one then. We're going to start. So cool. I love how you piss people off. This is one of the things I take people like from your content. I like it a lot because I think our, our message sometimes throws people off the wrong way. I go with likes and cash. No, but JK, likes can be cash sometimes. So people get kind of pissed off. Yours is like, I think your message gets misunderstood a lot. Solopreneurship. I said, no, Justin, you're thinking so small, bro. You should aim for bigger things. I get that a lot. Do you piss people off consciously on that? No, it's not really intended to piss people off. Like, I, I think people misunderstand it. My prior background was I helped build two billion dollar businesses. Like, I started at both companies, one as a, like a like a kind of middle management kind of guy, uh, and the second as the person who oversaw all of sales and marketing. And, and so I was responsible for every one of every dollar of the 71 million dollars that we, we build in four years. And I built big businesses like I, I've done that before. And it's a lot of fun. Um, but with that fun comes a lot of responsibility, a lot of headache, a lot of burnout, a lot of management. People management is very difficult. And so I just I decided to work on my own solopreneurship. And what I discovered was that like you can scale solopreneurship if I wanted and I could add teammates. I could do all those things. I could scale to 10 million or 15 million or 20 million. But why recreate the life that I'm running from? Like my life's pretty good. I have a $2 million business. I have no employees. My wife helps me out a little bit. But like I write on social media for an hour in the morning. I write a newsletter once a week and that's my that's my business. And like, why would I want to change that? I don't need to make more money than I make right now. There, there's no, There's nothing I can't do. And I don't mean that arrogantly, but there's nothing that I like can't do other than buy a huge mansion, which I don't care about in the first place. That is 
I think the admirable part about that is just making money. Of course, that is an admirable part. But another one was having the discipline to not make more. So for me, when I sold my company, I thought I was going to take a break and I was going to be like, and I'll be all. Did that same afternoon, I was on Slack answering questions. Yeah. How do you not fall into that treadmill of, what if I push for 10? I do sometimes. That's that's the, like, I call it shiny outcome syndrome, which is like different than shiny object syndrome. It's being enamored by other people's outcomes. So like, for example, sometimes I might look at someone like Alex Hormozzi and say, geez, look at him. He's killing it. He must make $20 million a year. That's amazing. And we see this outcome in the distance that we like hold up in high regard. But there's a gap between present state and future state that you have to fill in order to reach that outcome. And the shit that's in that gap is the stuff that you forget that you have to do. Like, I think his wife shared her calendar one time and I, I commented on it kind of in a funny way on Twitter. And it was like booked up from 6 a.m. to like midnight. And I, that's my that's my personal hell. Like, I don't I don't want anything to do with that. So like, I sit around and I ask myself, is the outcome that I'm shooting for, is there a reason for it, <laughs> right? Do I want to write a book and be try and be a bestseller like James Clear, right? Probably not. And so like, I look at all these different things that people are doing and I say like, does it align with my mission of spending more time with my family? Most of the time, the answer is no. I want two things there. One is when you commented on that, which was Layla posted her calendar. I thought it was a meme. I thought it was honestly a meme, but it was like, no, her actual thing. I'm like, oh, wow, that's a packed calendar. Then you commented, that's not how I do it. This is how I do it, which is yours, can I empty? And then Alex responded to that tweet. But I think he deleted the tweet that like, like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure he doesn't, I'm sure he doesn't like me. I, I don't have, um, I hold both of them in high regard. I think they're amazing entrepreneurs. I was just having fun. Maybe, maybe it came across. I, I don't usually do that, by the way. That's like so out of character for me. Um, I think I'd had a few beers that night and thought it'd be fun to shoot back my, my calendar. Probably shouldn't have done that, but uh, I did it and saw it with it, you know, is what it is. <laughs> hey, you just gotta, gotta do what you gotta do. Well, one take on this is sometimes that people have called me out on social media. I found that the best reply to that is no reply. People just forget like in a day. Have you found that to be true? Yeah, I, I generally like the thing that I commented on during that was very, like I said, very out of character for me. Uh, she wasn't saying anything about me. I just thought it was kind of a funny retort. But when people attack me online, most of the time, I'm just, I don't care. Like it, it's usually from someone very immature or is silly and I can just see it in the, in the way they write it. My other thing is I kill people with kindness. Like I'm a guy from the Midwest part of the United States. Like I'm from Ohio and everyone's real nice where I'm from. So like, I don't know, in, in a world where every personality is becoming more and more like a WWE wrestler, our politicians, our athletes, our singers, everybody's screaming. Everyone's got to have crazy, like it, it's just such attention seeking. I prefer to just be like very quiet and subdued. I think you're excellent at one thing that I know I do in sales sometimes, which is the moral framing or like high ground maneuver. So people will like fight up like about small things, but then you go, but guys, let's, let's look at the bigger picture here. And I have a tweet that I wanted to ask you about. I escaped the rat race 3.5 years ago. My secret sauce is not playing status game. I don't want to change the world, want to build the next unicorn, want to be featured on any lists or want to get the highest valuation. That's this Marvel in my opinion, because it's like, yeah, you're not playing status game, but like it's, Subtly, so, like, si like signals to, hey guys, you're all afraid of the wrong game. This is not how it's done. And I find this common theme in your stuff in that it polarizes people very well. Do you think about that at all? Or is that something that just kind of want to write? Yeah, I, I call it like kind of like movement creation, right? Which is like my movement is all about building your life first and your business second. 
it's designing your life. It's taking all the pieces of your life and putting them up on a board and like designing that intentionally. And then looking at what you've designed and then surrounding that with a business that allows you to live that design. That's my movement. And I do that through building a one-person business. Doesn't mean it's right. There's a million ways to do it. Grow a, make a billion-dollar company, hire 500 employees. I don't care about how anybody lives their lives. So I'm creating my movement, and my idea is that some people will love that. They will say, I also, that resonates with me. I, I want to build my life like that. I want to build a bit. And other people might be much younger than I am. I'm 42 years old. Maybe someone's 24, and they're like, I want to build the next Uber. Awesome. Go for it, right? Like, it doesn't resonate with them and therefore they won't follow along on, on my journey. And that's okay. I don't, I don't particularly want them to. So I'm trying to not necessarily divide or polarize, but just state my intention. And if you don't like it, awesome. If you do, that's cool too. That's cool. You mentioned uh, the business model you have. So I want to get deep into what's the actual business model. How does it work? So it's a $2 million a year business model, correct? Yeah, it's pacing like 2.2, 2.3 this year. Yeah. Awesome. What uh, What's the profit margin? It's like in the 90s something, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. This, this is the first year I've actually like, I've just recently spent a lot of money on improving some things in my business. Uh, but this is the first year I've spent real money on my business. It used to cost anywhere from, I'm probably forgetting software, so like don't quote me on it, but it's probably like anywhere from 12 to 1800 bucks a month to run the business. And the business does anywhere from, you know, 180 to 210 grand a month. So it's like huge 98%, 97%. But just recently I redid my website. Um, I redid my messaging. Uh, I'm starting to do some email automation. Uh, I'm building a new product, which I'm getting some help with. I'm outsourcing some some emails and landing page copy and stuff to some other people. So this is, this is the first time that I've like outsourced a lot of what I normally do myself just because I'm tired. You know, I want some help. What do you spend your money on? that you truly believe that it's like some of the best ROI you ever got. Like when I got my assistant, that was one of those. And like good flights, that's one of those. What's that for you? Yeah, the second one is one we spend we spend most of our, not most of our money on by any means. We, we don't spend a lot of money, but lay down seats when we travel. That's like, we we flew lay down for the, once my business had its first good year, I bought my first lay down seat to travel internationally. And I was like, oh, I can never, I could never fly any way other than this ever again. And like my wife was really excited about that. And we travel internationally a lot. So that's one thing we, we save our money and, and spend, we think wisely on. Another thing is we're just like very actively paying down our mortgage. I own my cars and I want to own my home so that I don't have any, the only outstanding debt I have is this mortgage and I want to have none, no debt. I don't want to be into it with anyone or, or with any bank at all. So I just like want to own everything I have outright. How much do you spend a month? Between 30 and 40 grand. So I do spend a lot of money actually. Yeah. yeah you, spend, you, spend, you spend a lot of money. Is that mostly like the, the mortgage and the flights? No, it's mostly like food and drink. We don't have any kids. So we go out all the time. I don't get, this is going to sound really crappy, but hopefully people will let me finish the sentence before they, they jump on it. <laughs> I don't do a lot of charitable giving because I don't trust most charities. I think especially for-profit charities, I think the, the executives get richer than the people they're supposed to be helping. The way that we give back is we tip really heavily everywhere we go because both my, my wife and I were, came up through restaurants. My wife worked in a restaurant until she was 31. Um, and I worked in a restaurant all through high school, college, after college. So like we have a lot of empathy for service workers. So that's sort of our philanthropy or charitable giving. So we, we go out a lot. We tip nice and that's things we enjoy. I didn't know you were in a restaurant. Did you talk about that often? No. I talk more about my wife's story. I only met my wife because we worked together at a tech company back in 2010. 
And she only got that job because she waited on the CEO. She was a cocktail waitress. She was didn't really know what she was doing with her life at 31. And she waited on the CEO of a company and he really liked the way that she treated him. And he said, you should move to New York and be my office manager. And she did. And then over the next seven years, she grew to manage all the offices globally across the world. So she was the director of office operations. And so we have a lot of respect for like people in positions of service who do a really good job. I'm 100% on that. Do you know Calicrates? It's this guy with an Hercules profile picture on Twitter. No, I don't. You know what I'm talking about? He has this tweet. I want to, it remind, what you said reminded me of it. It's, it's the opposite of what people think. Business owners aren't the greedy ones. Customers are. Try and walking in sales for a month or customer service for a week. Your view of humanity will change. The customers treat the business far worse than the business treats the customers. And I've found that to be true. That's another cool thing about being having my business model, which is like, I don't have employees. I don't have a board. I don't have growth targets. I don't have to hit certain numbers to please anybody other than myself. If a customer service person treats, or if a customer treats me or emails my wife and is, is nasty, like I can just refund them, revoke their access and say, you can't buy anything anymore. Like I don't, I, I, it doesn't happen very often, but if someone treats me poorly or my wife poorly, then it's just not someone I want as a customer. So that's a cool, that's like a cool little perk of running a one person business. Yeah, that's a good one. You don't have to respond to anyone. You also monetize them, bro. Some, sometimes one time somebody replied to your email, unsubscribe. Uh, I'm going to unsubscribe. This sucks so hard. Yeah. I'm like, well, this is going to be an email promo now. Thanks. Yeah. Sign up for my email. It sucks so hard. <laughs> said, what one All right. Let's, uh, let's get a little tactical here. I think this is going to be fun. I find you don't promote your products publicly as much as it's just newsletter. What's the logic behind that? And can you explain your business model from that point on? Yeah, my business model is really simple. So I think about the kind of four, there's five stages, but let's just make it easy. We'll call it four. There are people who are problem unaware. They don't know there's a problem. There are people who are problem aware. They know they have a problem. Then there are people who are solution aware. They know there are solutions out there. Then there's product aware. They know my product. And then there's most aware. They're like ready to buy. I spend most of my time on social media doing two things, trying to show people that there's a problem that they don't know about, which is like, hey, you might feel safe and secure in your nine to five job. So did a lot of my friends when they got laid off during COVID, right? They went from having 150 grand salaries to making zero in a split second, right? That's a problem that I don't think a lot of people think about. So I'm constantly sort of raising that problem. And then once people on social media understand that there's a problem, I start to talk a little bit about solutions, right? Give them a few tips, a few pointers, a couple of steps. And then generally what I'll do is spend all my time just building that sort of top of funnel movement, problem unaware and problem aware. I just want to grow that as much as possible. Then on each tweet or on each LinkedIn post, I usually send them to an article. And the purpose of that article is to help them get more of a solution, to take the three or four steps that I just talked about and expand on it a little bit. I want them to go from thinking, oh, I have a problem and here's a little bit of a solution to reading an article where they're like, wow, this is actually a much more detailed solution than I was aware of, to going, it sounds like Justin really understands this. Let me take a look at his products. And so at the end of each newsletter, I'm, I'll say like, if you thought that was helpful, the article that you just read, you'd love this product, the LinkedIn product. You'd love this product, the content product. And so I just link, drive 3,000 people to my website a day. And out of that, if 1% buy, which is 30 people, at $150 ARPU, it's a $4,500 day with courses. So I don't promote the courses. I promote the articles. The articles promote the courses. Tobias asked something that's 
I think that's a per perfect segue from it. I'm, I'm reading here. You opted in quickly for low price, high volume products, which works great if you're catering to a large market like solopreneurship. Do you think running a profitable on-demand course business will also work for smaller, more niche audiences? Yeah, I think so. For context, this guy does AI. He, he sells AI oh. solutions. I mean, I don't think that's any more niche than solopreneurship, but I think I don't think solopreneurship's like that big of a, a niche. If you look at someone like Saho Bloom, he writes about productivity. That's a huge niche. Like that's, you know, you can grow that uh, across the board, but not that many people are super interested in what I would call solopreneurship. But to answer- well, How about smaller audiences? I think that's yeah, what he's asking you. Yeah, I think you can. I think it's different, right? I think um, you may not be able to do that at the same price point that I do it at. If you want to make a hundred grand a year, just to pick a simple number, that's about $300 a day. You might put a, together a course that's $600. And every other day you might sell one, right? If you have a really, really niche audience versus like selling a high quantity of lower priced course offerings. I also think that the smaller a niche you're in, the more you need to deliver at different price points solving different problems. So rather than just relying on a course, you might have a course, a one-click upsell to a subscription email, a newsletter where you get a few thousand bucks in sponsorships, partners with other people in this small niche who you pay you to promote their stuff. There's a million different ways to build a thriving business outside of courses. Courses are just one of, you know, three or four ways that my business makes money. I think thriving is the key word there, as in how much money do you want to make? Yeah. Right. Six figures a year, that's a, that's a lot of cash. Honestly, you can buy a lot of things with that. The, the money that I make today was never in the plan. Never imagined it, never thought it would happen. I make way more than I did even as an executive at a big startup company. If my business made one quarter of what it made today, I would be just fine, just happy. For smaller audiences, because I do think about this a lot, I feel a good kind of combination of our worlds because I, I do client work. That's, that's just what I like to teach and do. But a good kind of middle ground I find is finding how much money you want to make, let's say one year, two years, three years in the future, walking back from that, knowing how much that is every month. And for me is I tell people, set up not a minimum of clients, but set a maximum of clients, even if it's just one. Because when you are at, let's say, I'm just taking one more client, when you have that scarcity, you have more peace inside you because you know that you're hitting that level. And two is you can use that in your messaging. Even if you have zero, you can say, hey, Justin, I'm only taking one more client for this month. Are you interested? It's still true, right? As long as it's true, you can stick to it. And I find that that results way less stress business. So it's just two approaches to lowering your stress and making more money. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, the most interesting thing is, I think everyone should be client facing in the beginning. I was, I used to um, work with clients, do service. Uh, I had a service business for a while. Well, I did two things. So the first thing I did in 2019 was I was a sales consultant for other high growth companies in the healthcare space. So the two companies I built were um, both in healthcare tech. So I took like series A, series B healthcare companies and I helped build their go-to-market strategy. I helped hire their executive team on the sales and marketing side. I helped put together their inbound and outbound you know, flows and, and conversions and things like that. Then as I started to get more into social media, a lot of what I did in the beginning was like I did coaching packages, which was like, how do we take someone who has a business idea and a good competency in that business and get them started? I'd get them up and up and running where they can start you know, making revenue from their business. Doing that, I learned a ton of where people were struggling. And in turn, I took everything that I learned and put those into the courses. The courses became a different price point. So once the course was out, 
I raised my service rates. And like when someone came to me, if they couldn't afford the service rates, I just directed them to one of the courses. And at the end of the course, I pitched the service. So like around and around and around that went. And after a while, I started selling enough courses where I didn't have to do service business, do the service business anymore. In the time that I got back from that, I invested into making the course business stronger. What was that money point at which you said no more service? It's a really good question. Uh, let me actually just tell you with uh, honesty. It was when courses hit, I hit a hundred grand. So I had my first hundred grand course month in July of 2022. And that is when I stopped doing service completely. Dude, you did it way after. When I hit my first four grand month, I quit yeah. my job. I'm like, no way I'm doing this anymore. I'm going to go full on life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That four grand month, by the way, was a one-time course that I sold. But next month, it was like almost nothing. It was horrible. And I just got stressed again. This is why this question is interesting to me. Justin, why did you decide to sell one-time products, courses, instead of something with MRR? I know you had a group before. So the group that this person's alluding to is I had a community for a while. Did you also hate it? I hate it. Yeah, I, I didn't hate the community. I I loved the people in it and I loved, we did like virtual and real life meetups. I flew to Barcelona, London, oh. Portugal. Like we did meetups all over the world. It was awesome. I didn't like running it. And I'm sure if you've been hearing me talk for the last 25 minutes, you probably imagine why, which is it didn't fit into my lifestyle. I underestimated the work effort. And so I just had to be real with everyone after 15 months and be like, hey, this doesn't fit into what, what I'm trying to build my life around. It was a mistake. So I shut that down. And then I was a reaction positive or negative or like, was it positive. bad? Positive. I, I gave everyone 90 days. I was like, Hey, we're going to shut this down 90 days. Everyone's going to get free 90 days. No one's going to get charged. We're going to do, we're going to keep doing the virtual sessions. We're going to do another in-person meetup. So like, it wasn't like pulling the plug because I'm very cognizant of, of customer service and reputation and things like that. But I knew that that business was like 120K ARR business. So it was making like 10 grand a month. I can make that in courses very easily. So without putting in 5% of the effort. But I, I did want to return to making some MRR. So what I, what I did was considering I do about 1,200 course sales a month, I introduced a subscription email at $9 a pop. And so I one-click upsell this subscription email at the back end of a course purchase. And I get about a 20% attach rate. So that means 240 new customers every month at $9. I've been doing that for a while. And that business is now a $22,000 MRR business. So it's a 250K ARR business, $250,000 annual business that requires me to send one email a month. Is that the templates? Yeah. Yeah. Marcus told me about it. I have a love-hate relationship with templates. Hate because it's everybody bits the shit out of them until they no longer work. Yeah. Love because it just sells so well. It's just a magic pill and people love it. I used to sell them Molina letter. But in a letter where just templates, people loved it. It's funny. Like I use my own. I'm, I'm actually sending a newsletter tomorrow that'll show people exactly how I did it. I wrote something on Twitter on September, I think it was 7th. Again, don't quote me. And then I took the exact same tweet, changed the words and published it 12 days later. And both tweets got 3,000 plus likes. No one was like, hey, this looks exactly like the tweet you tweeted 12 days ago. And yeah. so when I pointed out, I think people will understand we all have valuable information to share the vehicle in which we share it matters. And so if I know something works from a structure or style standpoint, why wouldn't I go back to it? I like that approach. A lot of people think they're above the algorithm. Marcus taught me this. It's like, 
no, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it my way, right? Because this is just a salesy. And I found, dude, tell me if you find this. This is, this is cool because you understand me, bro. But it's like a lot of people are like, oh, this is so basic. I don't understand how it gets so much engagement. But the people who say it are the people who can't get engagement. So they're actually projecting. It's like, I wish I had that, but I don't know how to say it. Everybody is an indie band until they get a hit song. Everyone wants to be creative. Everyone wants to be artistic. Everyone wants to be true to the art and the creativity until they get like something that blows up and then they go back to it and they're like, oh, I like making pop songs. This is more fun. More, more people like these. I don't know. I, I just don't think of myself as like, I'm not Picasso. Right. I don't, I'm not like, I'm not an artist by any means. I'm someone who's trying to convey the knowledge in my head in the clearest and most digestible way so that the people who read it can apply it and do better. Bro, I need to ask this. Do you plan to disappear someday? Throw your phone in the lake? Just disappear? Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, do you have a number for that? No, I don't. No, not really. It's, it's not really a number because I don't, I have a lot of confidence. I'm both underconfident and overconfident at the same time, which is a weird thing. Like there are days when I wake up and I'm like, this is all going to go away very quickly someday. Like I have a lot of fear around that. And then there are days where I'm like, I think I can do anything. Like I feel confident in myself. I was talking to Jeff Roberts, who was the CEO of Outseta yesterday. He came up and visited me in upstate New York. And I said, my dream is to like, just post a waving hand emoji. It's just like waving. And it's like, that's it. I'm just gone. All social media deactivated and like, build a brewery and a pizzeria, you know, like, I don't know what that next thing is, but I got about a five year shelf life and everything I do, I get really bored. And so I'm coming up on that fifth year and like, I have to do something, maybe not different, but something else too. You walk me through what you said about sometimes you're afraid because sometimes I am afraid too. Like, but it's, it's hard. Like if you told Justin from a couple of years ago, you're afraid, he's like, bro, you're tripping. You have so much money. What are you afraid of? And you have this business. But can you walk me through like, what does that look or feel like to you? I generally, like when I first built my business, I used to check the revenue all the time. How's the daily revenue looking, right? As it got bigger, I realized, wow, I'm checking this like 20 times a day. That's probably not that healthy. So I went to checking it like 8 a.m., noon, 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. And I'm like, I know basically where the business should be at on the, at those hours. Some days I wake up and I check in at eight o'clock and it's like two times bigger than it should be. And I was like, oh, this is great. And other days I wake up and check in at eight o'clock and it's like 10% of what it should be. And so when those things happen, and that's bound to happen in a digital product business, right? That's that's part of the business model is, is instability. When that, when that happens, your mind goes into some pretty crazy places, right? Like, is everything working on the website? Something broken? Um, is this it? Right? Like, my irrelevant, right? I think there's fears of irrelevancy that that happen, not because I want to be somebody, but because I want my business to thrive. And so I tell people all the time, if you think that you're going to hit like a certain revenue or income milestone and suddenly feel like safe and secure, I can tell you with confidence that it doesn't happen. And so I worry about that a lot. And I've always been what I would consider a very, very paranoid person, which has been really good for me in my life. It's helped me build both of the businesses I built before this, it's helped me be a really strong creator. And so it's unhealthy, but it also helps in a weird way, if that makes sense at all. I am in Andrew Wilkinson's Twitter subscribers thing. So he does a weekly, a monthly AMA. So this guy's a billionaire, right? But he had a Slack channel where we all were. And then he's like, guys, this is getting too expensive. We can't do it anymore. I'm like, bro, like you're a billionaire with a B, like what's going on here, right? So we got on a call on the Zoom call, the monthly one. Somebody asked him, 
how do you see money? Like, do you ever worry about money? And he said, this is a billionaire quote. He said, no matter how much money I make, I always find a way to worry about money. My buddy, Steve Schlafman, former VC, he's a coach now to executives. We were chatting the other day and, and we both realized that objectively, like if this all fell apart tomorrow, I'd be okay. Like we've saved a lot of money. We're in good standing for our age. But when you have weird moments where revenue is looking bad or engagement isn't good on your social media or people aren't opening your newsletter or whatever the whatever the small thing is, right? Objectivity and realism go out the door and your mind spikes, right? It goes to the worst possible scenario rather than the realistic scenario, which is just like, it's a down day, it's a holiday, you know, it's a Friday, it's nice weather outside, it's the summer. Like there's a million different reasons why that one day might not be going well, but it's really hard to get your mind out of a gutter if you immediately go to the worst case scenario, which I often do. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's so over, right? Next day, we're so back. Yeah. <laughs> Eternal yeah. cycle. Spikes and you're like, oh, it, um, everything's amazing, right? It's That's just what it happens all the time. All right. We, we got a few questions from from Rob that I think are important to you. So how do you resist the temptation to make more courses, bigger products? I look at the data, right? So my last product I released two years ago, and it still sells every day. So there hasn't been a real need to build like a new course because the products that I built in the past are improving in their hourly value every hour, right? If I spent 100 hours to build something two years ago, every sale improves my hourly value of the time that I put into it. And so those are just becoming increasingly more valuable over time. With that being said, I have fears of being like, oh, Justin hasn't created anything new in a while. Let's go pay attention to someone who is creating something new. And so I actually am in the process of building my first product in two years, It'll come out in January. But I'm really excited about it. It should be my new flagship product. I think it's going to be the best thing I've ever built. But the idea is that like courses will take a lot out of me because part of the reason I think I sell a lot of courses is they're good. Like I invest a tremendous amount of time. I put everything I know into them on the, on the topic. And so they take a lot out of me. If they're selling, I just didn't see a need to reinvest the time until sales started kind of going like that. When I sold my course and sometimes when I pitch my service, I find that I often get kind of buyer deafness as in I know what you're going to promote I know what you're going to sell it's almost like when you see the same ad and you just don't pay attention to it anymore you just keep scrolling mm -hmm. how do you prevent that or if it ever happens to you well I don't promote which is part of the way that I kind of avoid that same promotion I never promote my products that's not true I will promote them every in a, in a once in a blue moon you did the, what I call the super PS. PS, when you're ready. Yeah, totally. Like last Friday, I shared on LinkedIn three testimonials that I had gotten back to back to back on my LinkedIn course. They all came in with like an, within like an hour of each other. And I was looking at the numbers and I was like, oh, they're a little down today. And I was like, I'll pop this, these three testimonials up on LinkedIn and catch that number right up. And that's what I did. So I threw the testimonials up, 20 course sales came in, number boomed. And like that made my day you know, better. Right. But I try not to exhaust people with promotion. I try instead to use my newsletter and articles as a Trojan horse. Right. So it's like if every day I'm tweeting and you think the tweet's interesting or you like the LinkedIn post, and then I share an article that goes deeper on that subject, I'm not promoting, I'm not even really promoting the article. I'm just helping. I'm helping you solve a problem that you found to be relevant. And then inside of that Trojan horse is a promotion. My course is at the bottom, a link to my course in the article. 
So I try not to tire people by constantly adding value and letting them make the decision on when they want to pull the trigger. So that is a way of doing it right. What does that same strategy done wrong look like? Okay. I wrote a newsletter the other day. It was weirdly, I weirdly, I got like 30 really angry responses. I think it was mostly from like email marketers because I suggested that like bombarding people with drip campaigns is not the way to sell in the modern business. Now, maybe you and your your group here disagrees. When I think about how I buy things, and buy, just because I buy something this way doesn't mean that everyone else does. I'm aware of that. But like when I think about things I've bought, I bought Daniel Vasallo's Twitter course two years ago or three years ago before I was on Twitter. And I was like, why did I buy this? Well, I like Daniel's stuff. I've been following him for a while. I think he's interesting. Seems to have a good grip on the Twitter game. This was, you know, three years ago. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll buy that. But I've never like downloaded a lead magnet and then like been bombarded with like daily emails and been like, yeah, I'm going to read all these and then buy the thing at the end. Like I've just never bought anything like that. So to me, it's like, don't hammer me over the head to try and make a sale. Hammer me over the head with value. But if you're going to do that, set the expectations up front. How many emails am I going to get? How, how often am I going to get them? Why am I getting them? Why should I read them? Like those are things I think a lot of email marketers and marketers in general don't think about before they put me into a 27-step drip campaign over 25 days. And so to me, that's just like an, a non-modern way of selling. I recently came up across the concept of lead nurturing doesn't exist or like lead nurturing is a waste of time. To a point, I agree. As in, if you have a 27 or like a, even a seven-day email drip campaign, you don't read that shit. Like, let's just be honest. You're not going to have people get like, an, like a demonstration or a realization. What I found is your approach for me actually worked, which uh, is an offer-based business, not a promotion-based business, an offer-based business. I think it's a different thing because promotion is like almost to a certain degree kind of persuading people into doing things, whereas an offer-based business is you have a problem, here's an offer to solve it. So I try to set, tell people, buy my stuff because it's going to help you do X, Y, and Z. But that was kind of trying to pull them into it. But when I changed the packaging of that from this is going to help you do this to this is just a script. It's just an offer. Can you Do you want to buy the thing, the course, the script? That performed way better because it was just a direct solution. So when I offer just those little magic pills, those little solutions, I find it to be way more profitable to try to get people nurtured and to change their beliefs. Yeah, that I do. I, I'm going to be experimenting with some email marketing in, in 2024 and I didn't want to do it the wrong way. So I found this guy named Brennan, who's very, very well regarded in his space, Brennan Dunn. And he's kind of like the ConvertKit master. Like he knows more about ConvertKit than the CEO of ConvertKit, Nathan does. And Nathan will, will tell you that. You'll notice that anytime you sign up for my newsletter, you get piped to a thank you page. And 70% of the people who hit that page fill out the survey that I have there, which is like you click buttons. What are you trying to do? How far along are you? What are your biggest challenges? What, what platforms do you like? And they just click the buttons. And I take all of that information and I store that on their ConvertKit record. And then as I do email marketing, like all the emails should speak to exactly that thing. So if you told me you have an audience of 5,000, you're just starting your business and you're running a coaching program through LinkedIn, then every email you get from me will be how to grow your audience from 5,000 plus on LinkedIn to build your coaching business. Everything will be personal. Everything will be custom. It's a shit ton of work, but like 
if you tell me you want to do these things and I send you emails on exactly how to do the thing that you want to do, like that is a value add. And then at the end, I'm just going to say, hey, you've learned a lot about how to do X. If you want to learn more, buy this thing. If I'm done my job, I should convert a higher number of people because I've spoken personally to their problems. Do you actually write depending on every single one? Yeah, it's like 96 different emails. Holy shit, dude, you write a lot. Yeah, I write a ton. Yeah. Wait, so it's like you have 90, wait, somebody joins your list. There's 96 different places they could go. Not yet. No, it's, we're still working on it. Yeah, right now I'm just collecting the information and, and getting the, the, the records, what I call, I forget what it's called, like records updated or something. But I'm, I'm, I've built out this huge, huge sort of if this, then that chart. And it's, it's, it's not as much work as you might think because the email body stays the same. You kind of swipe out some copy. You swipe out some testimonials. You swipe out some instructions based on what kind of business. But the more interesting part is when that person ends up on the landing page for the product, I actually have dynamic landing page where all the text also changes. The header, the subheader should speak to your problem, right? Specifically and personally. If you're looking to build a coaching business on Twitter, all the testimonials you'll see will be people talking about how they build coaching businesses on Twitter. Like the testimonials change, they're dynamic, the heading changes, the landing changes, the copy changes. It's wild. It's a lot of work and it's expensive, but it's like the next phase in my business. And I guess once it's done, it's done. You don't need to rewrite those things. That's right. Then, then think about it this way. Like I'll just to add on to that. So let's say I also track the lifetime value of every subscriber. So I can see a subscriber sign up for my newsletter. And then I watch them for the first 30 days using this piece of software called Segmetrics. And they don't spend, they don't spend any money. Right. 31 to 60, 61 to 90, 91 to 180. And I track how they grow their value. So like in day 31 to 60, they might buy a course. So now they're worth $150. And then maybe they sign up for the templates and they stick around for nine months or 10 months for $9. That's 90 bucks, right? So now they're worth 240. So let's say that I throw 100 people into the newsletter. And of those, of those 100, four people buy a course. It's 150 times four, it's $600. That means 100 subscribers are worth $600. That means... Six out of a hundred buy a course, they be, or four out of a hundred, means I can spend $6 to acquire a new newsletter sub and be cost neutral. Or I can go into ConvertKit or Sparkloop and pay $4 for a sub and knowing that that sub will eventually be worth $6, then you have a cash printing machine. Put $4 in, pull the lever, make $6. So I'm trying to create this cash flowing business based on data and analytics. And that's like a huge part of my business in 2024. That might have lost someone there, but like I'm a big math guy, so that's how I think about it. What's the most? Yeah, I can see the LTV. What's the most one person has spent on you? Uh, it's actually a guy who's become a really good friend of mine. He has a really thriving business. He's probably spent fifteen to eighteen grand. Yeah, that's a one. That's a and that's one guy. I think yeah. you under, your business is very well designed. I've seen to take advantage of power loss because you have the one fifty course. It's one fifty, right? Am I getting it wrong? Yeah. Okay, one fifty. There's a $9 thing, but you can also spend 3000 to be on your newsletter. So I find that you understand that the game sometimes isn't about monetizing a little bit out of everyone, but finding the people who are willing to give you a ton of cash and then just like double down on them. 
like the 3k guys like this new 15 18k guy totally um, there's there's a lot of different ways you can make money once you have a decent following and a thriving business that that has a you know a passive part of it what's decent to you like in a number what do you mean just so i understand a lot of people ask me like oh when i'm when i'm have a decent following i'll monetize when i have mm -hmm. more followers i'll monetize what's the number there's not really a number, right? I know guys with 500,000 followers. I have friends with 500,000 followers who can't monetize. Uh, and I have- Oh, it's same, bro. That's I, yes. Yeah, I have I have buddies with 30,000 followers making making a million bucks. Um, so I don't think there's really a number. I think what it is is like, it's a formula, which is probably number of followers times what people are willing to spend with you. So the smaller you have an audience, 30,000, 20,000, there are two things that need to be true. One is you need to have a product that's probably more expensive than 150, right? You probably should have a product that's a thousand bucks. That's that's true, number one, in my opinion. It's not always true. Number two is you probably have to put in more elbow grease. So there's going to be more of a service component. There's going to be more of a consulting or coaching or time for money component to that business. The third thing that's probably needs to be true is with those 30,000 followers, if your niche is really small, you kind of have to be like, one of the guys or the girls in that niche. Like if people were to name who are the 10 best or five best people in insert your niche here, your name should come up routinely, regardless of whether you only have 20 or 30,000 followers. So those are like the three things that need to be true. You need to have an expensive product or a mildly expensive product. You need to put in a little more elbow grease and you need to be like known for that thing. If those th three things are true, you can probably build a multiple six-figure business with twenty to thirty thousand followers, maybe even less. Would you advise people monetize day one, and why? Probably not. Like, there's probably someone who could raise their hand and say, "I did, and it worked for me." Awesome. There's no, there's no like all advice is contextual, but I don't know. I learned a lot from my audience. I built my audience two years before I built a product, and I really didn't get much in two years. I think I only had fifty thousand followers after two years on LinkedIn, and I wasn't on Twitter. I don't know. I think you learn a lot about your audience when when you can talk to them and engage with them without any pressure of of making money. I think especially because you can get on the phone or you can jump on a Zoom and you can just ask someone to talk to them about their problems. What are they trying to do? Why? What's getting in the way? What have they tried? How did it work? Right? Why is it a personal problem? How big of a priority is it? How urgent is it? You can learn all those things and the person can give freely knowing that you, you're not going to pitch them something. At the end of the uh, at the end of the call, I liked doing that, and I did that for two years, and that's what eventually became the LinkedIn operating system. Was all the things I learned talking to people. Yeah, I didn't do it that way, but do, those two things worked, you know. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, but yeah, it's like choose, choose choose your character, I guess. Totally, that's that's yeah. cool about online business. <laughs> I would love to have some input on niches and positioning, especially when you don't sell custom services products, but digital one-time product. People love that, bro. It's like. How do I position myself? How do I position myself? And I just think people are just not simplifying it enough. They're overcomplicating it. It's just finding something that people are not willing to do. I have a guy in my program that just, he was in the physical therapy niche, but nobody did knees, so he became the knee guy. Then another guy joined. Nobody did shoulders. He became the shoulder guy. So that's how I think about positioning. But to you, how do you think about positioning? Yeah, I think... I'm actually building this in the new product, a huge module on, on positioning. Without going into the, all the dirty details, I think people confuse what they do with why people should choose them. So like, I will talk to someone and say like, what's your unique value proposition? And they'll say, I help 
early stage healthcare technology companies grow from 1 million to 10 million. And I'm like, that's what you do. <laughs> why you? Like, why should I choose you? What's your secret sauce? Like, what is your story? What, what about your journey sets you apart from other people? And I kind of call this like a combination of practical experience and learned obsessions, right? We all have practical experience. We've done something. Even if you've never had a job, you've probably done something over and over and over again that you get pretty good at. And then there's learned obsessions, which are like things you don't necessarily do for a living, but you're super obsessed with. You just like, you would read a book about it. You would study it on YouTube in your spare time because you enjoy it. Oftentimes, our combination of our practical experience and our learned obsessions create a very unique story about our background. And I think if you can figure out, yes, who you help, you need to understand who you help and what you help them do, but how your unique story and your unique journey separates you from other people that they might consider working with, that's like the tricky part that you have to figure out. For me, to give you an example, when I was building my consulting business, there were a million people who said like, I help healthcare companies grow. But my journey was that I had joined $2 billion companies, both before they even had a million in sales, one had zero in sales. They're two of the biggest named companies in healthcare. I've gone from door-to-door -door salesman all the way up to chief revenue officer over 10 years. And I have that very specific experience doing that only in SMB healthcare. I don't sell to hospitals. I don't sell to administrators. I don't sell to systems. I sell to private practice physicians. So if you've got a business that's at 1 million in recurring revenue, and you want a guy who's built $2 billion companies selling over the last 10 years only to private practice physicians, and that's your business, there's nobody else who's done that. I'm the only guy. It's an easy fucking choice. Who's going to, some other guy's going to come in and be like, yeah, I built a telecom company. It's, ir it's irrelevant, right? I can charge what I want to because I'm the guy who did it. And so you got to find that thing, if that makes sense. I love how you have everything just here. You just, you just know, bro, like, you don't go on video much, but you're more articulate than a lot of the guys that do video as their main thing. Your thing, main thing is writing. Do you practice your articulation in video? I got trained on public speaking for many, many years. So I gotcha, feel, gotcha. feel very comfortable with, with public speaking and being on video. I just don't like turning the camera around on myself. So that's why you don't see me on video. Yeah. One, one thing about positioning I like, it's that I tell people, Dan Coe is big on this. I think he, he coined it. You are the niche. As in the things that you post that sort of seem like they're not businessy, they're actually excellent for business. I'll give you an example. When you posted a picture of beers and pizza tonight, yeah, it's like, you might think he's showing the shit, which you might, but it's also like, hey, my life is fun. This is what turns out of my business, right? So it actually adds to people wanting to work with you. This is why I tell people, if you're a coach or whatever, you, you don't really sell coaching, you sell lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So those things have a big place on your content strategy. That's right. Um, I wrote about that in a recent newsletter where it's like, you may think me sharing a picture of me and my wife going hiking is just me showing you what we're doing, but it fits into the narrative and the story and the mission and the movement, right? Which is we're getting outside in the middle of the day on 1130 on a Tuesday to go hiking in a beautiful park. Like that is a benefit of building this business. I think about it. I always learned it as negative present and positive future. You want to take someone who's in a negative present and you want to show them the positive future. And then between the negative present and the positive future, there's a gap. They want to know, how do I fill this gap to get to that place? And that's what a lot of your content should do. That's what a lot of your products should do. But part of your content should be showing that positive future because that's the motivation that causes people to act. What is uh, the biggest difference between LinkedIn and Twitter in terms of monetization and interaction from Ben Latour? I mean, I think LinkedIn is 10 times better. 
just where I like, I think, again, I'm going to paint with a broad brush. I, I like when I say something, it, it's not binary. It's not one and zero. It's, it's an, it's an observation. Twitter is a game where everyone is jockeying for position, right? It's a lot of like, who can create the best story, who can kind of outmaneuver the other person or convince you that they are a thought leader or know their stuff or whatever it might be. But there's a lot of like exaggeration. A lot of people I, I, I think behind the facade maybe aren't as successful as you might think they are. Whereas LinkedIn, it's just like a lot of dudes and girls like 29 years old, making a hundred grand and they want to learn something new, right? They've got money, they've got a job, they're professionals and like they're open to buying products, buying services, fixing problems. And you don't have to like shitpost, make a meme, be misogynistic or abusive. A lot of the things that work on Twitter to rile people up don't exist on LinkedIn. It's safe. It's easy. Is it cringy? Sure. If you stay away from it because you're, you think you're too cool, then congratulations. You're the, you're the cool kid in high school that grew up and never made money, right? While the nerds that you all made fun of went and did the uncool shit, like become engineers and now make millions, right? I don't give a shit about being cool. I give a shit about my business doing well. So like I'm over on LinkedIn because it's the best place to build a business, in my opinion. Whether you think it's cringy or not, I don't care. The difference on LinkedIn is that there's not a lot of creators. There's a lot of consumers. And so it's pretty easy to figure out how to kind of maneuver and and start to win on LinkedIn because it's it's like the same kind of formula, right? Great, stunning first line, contextual second line, hook on the third line, get people to click see more, ask people to repost at the bottom. It's pretty simple, right? It's like the hook, the meat, the call to conversation, the trailer, the meat, the call to conversation, whatever you want to say, write the meat first. What is it that you want to say? Then write the hook, right? Then at the end, call people into the conversation. More comments you get on LinkedIn, the more that stuff just rolls for 24 hours. I think you push the buttons of your audience very well, as in the present pain and the and the non-pain future. But I feel like me, I get what their problems and solutions are. Like I understand them, but then when it's time to actually pick up the keyboard and write, I just go dumb. I'm like, wait, how do you write again? Like, does that ever happen to you? As in, you know you need to talk to your uh, like audience's problems, but somehow you just don't. How do you overcome that? And if you do? Yeah. I mean, I, I write every day. So like I write nonstop. I think you're a great writer. So I, I can't imagine you have that, that much uh, of a problem. But there are days where I get into like a rut where I can't really figure out how to explain something. So like pretty simply, I'll use ChatGPT not to write, but I'll go in and say, here's the problem my audience has. Here's how I would solve it. Can you help me formulate this in a way that makes sense? Like from top to bottom, right? And so it'll just spit back like, first you should kind of probably talk about this, then this, then this. And I, I need my page prepped when I'm in a creative rut. Staring at a blank piece of paper when I'm in a rut is really, really tough for me. When I'm flying, like I can write on blank paper all day. But if I'm in a rut, I need to be like prompted. I need someone to say like, next do this. And so I use that as sort of like a, a structural guidance to, to explaining someone's problem. And then I'll just take that and I'll, I'll actually write it out like, okay, step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. Once that's done, I set that aside and it's like, cool, now all I need is the hook. And the hook is easy. Like the hook is a stunning and compelling first line, that scroll stopping line, that thing that should get people to stop scrolling on their phone. The second line is adding that context and the third line is getting them to click that see more. 
if I can do that and I've already got the sort of structural outline of the meat, like that's pretty easy, even when I'm in a, in a, in a non-creative rut, but, uh, or, 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 excuse me, when I'm in a creative rut, but when I'm in a rut, I'll use ChatGPT to kind of structure out how to, how to write basically. Is that the only use you have for AI in your business? Yeah, I don't do much with AI. Like, like I'll teach people how to make like a content matrix, but it's not really something that I do all the time. Do you use them though? I feel like it's good to teach it to people because it gets you going. But nowadays, I, I just feel like it's like blood memory sometimes. I just know what to write about. Are you too? Totally. Most of the systems and processes I share are systems and processes that helped me as I was growing. But most of my business is muscle memory at this point in time. I used to write my content out for weeks and months in advance, and now I just write it the next, the day before, or sometimes the morning of. I've done it so frequently for so many years. Doing it is is almost like riding a bicycle, right? But in the beginning, you need that structure and that that process and that systems in, in order to really thrive, in my opinion. How do you monetize and grow an account at the same time, Justin? How do you monetize and grow an account? Well, it's a really good question. Um, I think a guy who's doing a really good job of that is someone like, I don't know, do you know Erwin Lear? I don't. He, he writes on my con. He, we, we got connected because I published this article. This will answer your question. I published this article about how to grow your first 5,000 Twitter followers in 90 days. And he was like, I'm going to turn this into a challenge. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's really awesome. That's like permissionless, you know, apprenticeship, old Jack Butcher kind of stuff. And like he announced this challenge he was going to do 90 days. He was going to grow to 5,000 Twitter followers. He had like 30. And in 90 days, he got to 4,800. And I was like really impressed by his work. He wasn't potting, he, none of the tr you know cheats or anything like that, just writing content. And as he was growing, he literally was putting together a course going like, there's courses out there that guarantee six figures and seven figures and how to get 100,000 followers. He's like, I'm going to show you what I did to follow this 90-day game, game plan to get 5,000 followers. And he shared the other day and like he's selling it for 25 bucks. Every Most people can afford that. And so he took something that he was doing, growing, and then shared all the lessons during that growth in real time as he was doing it and turned it into a product. And he shared with me the other day, he made like 4,000 bucks. That's pretty cool for a guy who has a full-time job and had never made money on the internet. So like, that's one way is to just monetize the knowledge that you're gaining as you're gaining it. I love it. I love it. I was afraid of monetizing for such a long time because I thought it was going to mess up my brand. Because there's the two arguments, as in monetizing gets people to take it more seriously, which I believe now. But there's the other one, which is the longer the you wait, the longer the ask can be. So save up your goodwill. How do you think about that? I've, I've stated this publicly in pieces of content before, but I almost wish I would have waited a little longer. There were times when like I thought, man, if I had waited until right now, I think I could launch something and, and have a launch that's one for the ages. Uh, I still think I can, but if I hadn't sold any products over the last three years, you know, I think I could have definitely done something for the ages, but then I wouldn't have made any money over the last four years. So there's always like a give and take. I think the, to answer your question, what I would look at is not, did I reach a certain follower milestone or when can I make the right ask or any of those things? To me, it's more qualitative signals. So it's like people coming to you via DM, via email, via wherever, right? Asking the same thing nonstop. Like the same question a hundred times plus. That's when I decided to build the LinkedIn operating system. I had been servicing people, going through my coaching business. And like, I got the same questions every single day. And if you get the same questions every single day, if we, if we were building software, we would automate that. 
And the best way to automate the answering of questions is to build a course. And so like, I kind of use that qualitative data point for people to say, hey man, I've got this one problem. I'm going to ask you about it a hundred days in a row. And quantitatively, I had like 50,000 followers on LinkedIn. And I was like, the two of these things together seem like a good opportunity for me to launch a course. I'm sort of an authority at this point in time. Everyone's asking me the same question. I've serviced a lot of people. I can put those three things together and launch. Sometimes I wish I had waited longer, but for why? I, I'm not quite sure, to be honest. I like the answer you gave, which is when people ask you to, man, or when the market wants it. Yeah. What If you, hypothetically, you didn't do anything, you didn't monetize, you didn't do anything, and you had your launch for the ages, how much money do you think you would make on that launch for the ages? I think I could do a $3 million 30-day launch. Dude, I love that. How would you do it? How would you launch something if, or like, can, can we talk about this? Okay, so you're gonna you're gonna launch something, uh, in in January, January, right? Mm -hmm. How much do you think you're gonna make from it, and how are you gonna launch it? I don't know the answer, um, but I have, I have hopes that I can do a seven figure thirty day launch. Now I might come in fifty percent of that, I might come in ten percent of that. Um, that's that's the unknown. From a data perspective, like it's possible if you run the numbers. So the way that I'm gonna launch is it's multi factored. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm collecting all this information on people that I'm, I, as I mentioned before, I'm going to start talking about this in November. That's two months before launch. I'm going to start previewing behind the scenes of it every single day. I'm going to do that on Twitter and LinkedIn, not with the goal of people buying it, but for the goal of people to say they're interested in buying it. And on, on that interest page, my goal was to collect as much information as, about that person as possible. So that when it comes time to do the launch, which will be a seven day launch, I can speak back to them their problems through those emails we talked about earlier, right? All those 96 levels of emails. I want to be able to personally say back to them, I heard these problems from you and here's how I would solve them. Here's how the course solves them. Here's testimonials from people just like you, so on and so forth to make it very, very personal. It's going to be a combination of two months of social media prep work. It's going to be a combination of like 30 days worth of launch emails that are not every single day, probably twice a week kind of moving you through what I learned about you personally, helping you solve some challenges, showing you how the course will help solve those very specific and personal challenges we talked about. And then we'll do some, a combination of both urgency and, and price anchoring. So there'll probably be three price levels. One price level will be very expensive to make the other two price levels look less expensive. We'll do a live event that people can sign up for, not be shared with anyone else after it. So it's like urgency, it's scarcity, it's behind the scenes. It's your one chance. Uh, and then we'll probably do a closed cart. And so a closed cart will be just like, this is your se seven day window to get this thing. And like, we'll open it again in the future. And I hope through personalization and value, that's the number one driver. It's not urgency. It's not scarcity. It's personalization and value will be the number one driver. I think scarcity will be the second driver. I think urgency will be the third driver. So by, by kind of combining and stitching those three things together over a total of two, two and a half months, I hope we can get 10,000 people onto the waiting list. I hope we can get 3,000 sales at an average revenue per person of 600 bucks, 800 bucks and do one, six to two, two, one. That, that would be my hope. I might do nothing. It might fail. I don't think, I don't, I don't think you're going to, it's going to fail. It's, it, you know, it's not going to fail, but deep down, you always have that fear. Right? Yeah. You always take, yeah, you should, so. yeah. You never know. A lot of people maybe listening to this that have somewhat of an audience already, but they feel like it's it's dead or it's inactive. 
Have you ever encountered that situation? And if so, how did you reignite that? Yeah, I'm working with that with a friend right now. She's She's been off social media for a while and she's got like 90,000 Twitter followers. Dude, it's just like, it's just sniper. It's, excuse me, it's like machine gunning, right? You got to like, there's two kinds of creators. There's like creators who sniper, they drop in once a week and drop like an awesome post. And there's people who just like machine gun three, four, five, six posts a day. And I think when you're kind of working your way out of a rut, it's a phased approach. You got you to machine gun your way out of that rut. Like you got to create a tremendous amount of content. You got to get the algorithm feeling you again. You got to get you seeing you again. You got to get the people's time, top of their feeds and timelines again. You got to you got to put in the elbow grease and the legwork again when you're just getting started. And then I take all that data, right? So like, let's say you do it for 30 or 60 days and you tweet or LinkedIn post three times a day, whatever, right? And then you should take all that data. And this is another great use of ChatGPT. I would export all that data out of Shield if I was doing LinkedIn, feed it into the data collector on ChatGPT and say like, tell me what's working, <laughs> right? What's working and what's not working. It'll tell you if there's an image attached, a carousel, a text, the number of characters, the theme, and like ChatGPT is pretty good at spitting back out and saying like, this theme plus this style plus this length plus this, you know, medium, the combination of these things seem to be resonating the most. And then you can move from machine gunning into being more of a sniper, but you're just doubling, tripling, forexing down on that one or two things that works really effectively. But in the beginning, you got to work your way out of that ditch, which I see happens to people, especially on Twitter when you don't post for a while. I think that's the best answer somebody has ever given to that question. That is awesome. What is what? I love that you have examples like machine gun, sniper. What are some other examples or mental models that you have about thinking about social media that serve you well? Um, one that serves me well is like top of mind, continuous top of mind. So I tweet every day at 817, 936, 1158, and 225. And that's four tweets. And then each of those tweets gets a plug. Like I'll plug a newsletter article, I'll add some context, right? So at 817, my tweet comes out. At 845, the plug hits. At 9.36, the second tweet comes out. At 10.18, the plug hits. At 11.58, the third. At 12.54, the plug. At 2.25, at 3, 3.30. So now it's suddenly eight tweets, right? And then all of those tweets get retweeted nine hours later. So you've got four tweets that turn into eight tweets that all get retweeted, right? So now you're at like anywhere between 12 to 16 opportunities to be at the top of someone's feed whenever they log in. So my goal is when you log into Twitter, I want my picture and something that I've written that day to have a high likelihood of being at the top of your feed. That has worked wonders for me. And then I do this thing where whenever I plug a newsletter or an article, I set up UTM tracking by the day, the post and the, the, the actual uh, platform. So I'll track how people get to my website from what posts. So for example, I can log into my analytics today and I can see that today, <clears throat> which is really interesting, 152 visitors came from my newsletter promotion on my first tweet this morning or my first LinkedIn post. But 143 people have also come from yesterday's first LinkedIn post and September 26th first LinkedIn post and yesterday's first AM tweet. So I can see all the specific pieces of content that drive people to my website. And then if they sign up for my newsletter, I capture all that data. 
So I can go back after 30 days and say, what's the one tweet and the one LinkedIn post in the last 30 days that drove the most web visits, newsletter signups, product purchases. And then I take those two things and I store them in the future. I'm like, these are nuggets. I can release these whenever I want. And I'm trying to build this sort of portfolio of power tweets and power LinkedIn posts, where it's like every day, everything that I post is going to, is going to blow up. And that's why I build this 730 day content repurposing document where it's like, I know the day I tweet something, the URL, how well it performed. And then my software, the, the thing that I built in Notion just pushes that tweet out six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. So two years from now, I know exactly what I'm tweeting every single day because it's shit I tweeted two years ago, but only winners. That's also really good for a rut. Like if you're in a rut, just pull out the golden nuggets, like just barrage people with what do you know will work. I want to be like the band you go to see in concert. Like, play the fucking hits. This is this is great. What is I know these changes, but what are some posts or styles that you have seen that consistently work to directing traffic to a page or themes or just things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the the number one thing that works for me, and it's because I have a big following, right? So like you could do this tomorrow and you have a hundred followers on LinkedIn, like it's not gonna work work as well. But for me, it's I tweet a lot of one-liners and like I got called out the other day for it. Like you might call them like fortune cookie tweets, but like they work. So why wouldn't I do it? Right. Uh, I, again, like I'm not, I don't consider myself an artist. So I just like, I do, I do the things that work for my business. So I do a lot of these fortune cookie tweets, which are like one-liners that are wordplay, wordsmithing, make you think a little bit. Those generally are performing very, very well in the new X algorithm. Then what I'll do is because those are such sort of one-line I call them stunning or compelling. I don't think my own writing is particularly stunning or compelling, but those tweets, I think some people do. So I screen capture that with TweetPick. I pop that onto LinkedIn and that big image of that one line gets people to stop. Then I'll add context on that LinkedIn uh, post and teach people how to do something in like three steps. Here's how I would handle that. A, B, C. I wait till the post takes off and then 15 minutes later, I grab my edit content, which I've set up the day before, which is like, okay, you've read these three steps. Want to go deeper? Here's an article I wrote. I flip that into the LinkedIn post, edit it. The algorithm doesn't catch that. It keeps the post growing since you added the URL 15 minutes later and the post just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And you can see the people move from that post literally in real time to my website on my analytics software. And so that is how I drive the most people to my website through LinkedIn. But the secondary thing that I do is because I track all the different articles uh, and how they perform, I know which articles convert and which ones don't. So they all kind of look similar, but like there's two articles I share often, how to start your first online business and four ways I would start a six-figure side hustle. So like I often append those to LinkedIn and tweets as often as possible because I know they convert into revenue. So like that's how I think about revenue, website visits, conversion, stuff like that. I might've lost the yeah. question. Sorry if I rambled. No, that, dude, that was, please ramble. People are loving it. One, one thing that works for me as well, it's I was disappointed when I realized this worked, but I was like, ah, let me just do it anyway. Sam Ovens, the school guy and consulting.com guy was asked, what disappoints you about social media or just selling in general? He's like the Lambos, the skyscrapers, the stuff works. 
So I'm like, nah, there's no way. Let me try it. So I said about how I moved and I bought an apartment and I did these things. Story, aspirational stories to me worked way better than relatable stories. I think that aspirational, you use relatable to like build an audience and get people loving you, but you use aspirational to sell. And I think that confusing those is a mistake. You too? Yeah, I do something different. Um, I I start every course the same way. So if anyone here has had one of my courses, they all start the same way, which is like, hey, the reason that this course is $150 is because um, I'm shooting it at my home office on my webcam. Um, I didn't rent a plane, a yacht, a skyscraper, uh, any of those stuff to look cooler, richer, or more successful than I really am. And that's how I keep my cost low. And like, I build this like anti-Dan Locke, anti-Nick, uh, not Nick Ovens. That was a guy I went to school with. Ovens, Stop. whatever. Sam yeah, Ovens. Uh, Anti-Sam Ovens sort of thing because I want those things to be relatable because I feel like in general, I'm a pretty relatable guy. Um, so I kind of go anti with that, but I'm trying to create this move, this movement to say like, you don't need those things anyways. Even even if I could afford to go out and buy a Lamborghini, like I wouldn't. <laughs> and here's why I wouldn't, because here's the life I'm building. Here's how I think about life and business. So I do the anti because it fits in the narrative of my business, whereas other people showing a Lamborghini might fit within their narrative. Uh, it's just the opposite for me. Yeah, I think I think it wasn't clear on that. It's like you show the lifestyle. Lifestyle yeah. sells more than like relatable. I show hiking in the middle of the day. That's my Lambo. Exactly. Exactly. There you go. That now we got that. Yeah, that's what I wanted to point out. Yep. Uh, all right. What is one thing that maybe if we ended this discussion without talking about, you'd be like, "Ah, oh, man, I wanted to talk about that." Something that's maybe fresh in your mind, like, you know, yeah, there is something that's that's kind of fresh on my mind, which is, I think, and again, take it with a grain of salt. It's just just my opinion, but like, it feels like ever since Twitter changed hands, it's gotten a lot meaner. That's just what it feels like to me. Like there's this like abrasiveness that's um, permeating what I see online, and it's maybe, maybe it's always been that abrasive, and I've just I just missed it. But like, no, and I'm with you. Everyone's jockeying to like own everybody, or oh man, he owned you, or you really got this guy, or, or that, that kind of stuff. And like, those are real dopamine wins for some people. Like they say something funny or insulting, or they hurt someone's feelings, and they get some dopamine because lots of other angry and cruel people flock to that and say, yeah, it was fun. Let's make fun of that person because they're fat or stupid or whatever, right? That dopamine is really dangerous. And I think like if you really want to build a long-term business, the smartest people right now are like supporting not only their peers and their friends, but the future people on the platform. Um, like I see people who have 5,000, 6,000, 8,000 followers who I think are really high value people adding a lot of, you know, good and positivity to the to the the ecosystem and i go try and go out of my way to support them when i say this i, I don't mean like if you have four hundred and thirty thousand followers you don't need to do that right and a lot of people with those that many followers don't do that they don't support other people they don't engage with their audience and one thing that i've done and will continue to do is i engage with my audience for 45 minutes to an hour every single morning and like most of the big accounts don't do that so like the whole big takeaway is like it really is about building a community, not about getting followers. And it really is about supporting people because getting to the top is one of two ways. You step on people's heads or you get lifted on their shoulders. And to me, like being lifted on people's shoulders has always been the easiest, the best, 
the most revenue producing in the way that I can actually lay my head on my pillow at night and feel really good about myself. So that was like, I'll get off my soapbox, but, um, and maybe people think it's like a, a lot of, uh, being too moral, but like, I get sick and tired of watching everyone trash everyone else. No, dude, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I think that like attracts like, I see yeah. a lot of people who complain about, oh, customers take forever to make a buying decision. They also take forever to make a buying decision. They just, yeah. they just don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. People are like, why am I only attracting broke people? It's like, if they act like that. Why am I only attracting aggressive group chats and abrasiveness? It's like, because you are like that. So I, I've made a conscious effort because I'm like, my personality is kind of combative. Sometimes I tend to, I can get negative. So I try to like, no, fuck that. Only positivity on Twitter because I notice exactly what you notice, which is people are getting kind of angry these days, even more than before. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. This was fun, man. I think this is awesome. Uh, guys, do you have any question for Justin that you'd like us to end on? Eddie Quan says, that abrasiveness Justin mentioned is growth gurus frustrated they've lost 90% of their income. Back. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most people are angry. When someone's really angry all the time, it's just, it's an indicator that they're desperate. And uh, what do you think is the best way to start a conversation on a LinkedIn post? I hate simple calls to conversation. Like my least favorite are like, here's my 11 favorite tools. What else would you add? Like, I think those are really boring and, and, and kind of played out and won't, won't help you. I think it's when you ask something meaningful. Like the other day I shared, I might have been a month ago, I shared like, hey, if I were to build my first business from scratch, here are two ways I would think about it. And I wrote like, okay, I'd think start by maybe thinking about a service business and then here's how I might productize that service over time. And in the end, I said like, these aren't the only two ways to start a business, especially when you're starting from scratch. Would be keen to hear like who else has had success with unique business models that aren't these two things. It was a genuine question. Like I was generally curious, genuinely curious how people had done that. And so because it was a genuinely curious thing and it wasn't like an engagement bait, I think people can see through those things. And so the easiest way to call people in the conversation is to talk like you would as a human being, right? If you were genuinely curious in a group chat at a bar, if you're all ha hanging around having a beer and someone was talking about something and you had a question on the tip of your tongue and you wanted to ask it, you would ask it. And so like ask those types of questions. Don't just be like, do you agree or disagree? <laughs> what else would you add? Those are like such engagement baits that people see through them. So just be genuine. Treat online the way that you treat offline, right? It, it just, I write like I talk and I think you should, I think other people should too. Bro, those were my last two call to actions on LinkedIn. I feel called out right now. Sorry. So much Sorry. <laughs> All right. That, la last one on here, Rob, before we hop off. Um, sure. With so many people hitting you up, how do you decide who to, how do you decide who to connect with now as a peer? That's a really good question. So... I get hit up all the time and I generally have shut all my channels down. Like it, you can't really communicate with me via email. I have DM autoresponder up on, on LinkedIn. It's really about effort. Like I tell this story a lot and I'll just, I'll tell it quickly, which is back in the day when I was getting started on LinkedIn, this guy, Austin Belsack, who's a friend of mine to this day, um, reached out to me when I had like 3000 followers and he was like, Hey, I see you're posting on LinkedIn. He had like a hundred thousand followers. And he was like, Hey, here's a PDF that I, I read a year ago that was really helpful for me. I thought I'd share it with you. And I was like, oh, thanks. That's awesome. Like, who are you? Tell me a bit about yourself. We started chatting, found out he liked beer. And he's like, where do you live? And by, by that time, I'd lived in Nashville. And he was like, cool, man. I live in the city. I'll send you a few beers, some IPAs from New York City. And I was like, oh, I'll send you a few IPAs from Nashville. And then it was like a beer exchange. And then he came and hung out and we had dinner. And now he's got one and a half million followers. I've got 
500,000. And like when he launches something, I support him. When he, when I launch something, he supports me. It's people who go out of their way to like add value. And I know that's like a really cliche statement, but Erwin Lear is a perfect example. I'll use his name again. He took something that I wrote and turned it into a challenge, which now like a thousand people are taking on Twitter, which is mind blowing to me. And like he helped spread my name. That's so, that's so cool. So when he reached out to me and he wanted me to like his content when he launched his $25 course, like, of course I did. It's just showing up and learning how to solve people's problems. Permissionless support, introduce them to somebody in your network, uh, share something that you think would be valuable. Don't point out typos on their website, show that they missed a comment in their newsletter. I, I mean this really nicely. Guys like me, that we don't, I don't care. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh my God, I missed that comma. We should be friends, right? Like, you know, it's, it's nice and I get it, but like I get 50 of those every single email that I send out. So like try and figure out a way to make that person's life easier. That's what Erwin did for me. That's what Austin did for me. This was a great night of minutes, man. Thank you. Where can people, you have a bigger fucking audience than me, but <laughs> promote, just where can people go to if they want to learn more from you? Yeah, people can go to justinwealth.me. A lot of people put a C in my name. There you go. Pretty simple. If you want to take a look at either of my courses, I'll tell you what they do so that you don't buy the wrong one. The LinkedIn course is exactly what it sounds like. It helps you use LinkedIn, not just to gain followers, but to actually build a business. And the content course is really just how to create a newsletter and six to 12 pieces of content that drive people back to that newsletter. Kind of like I talked about how I run my business. If you want to get 20% off, uh, I did a coupon for this group. It's just likes, L-I-K-E-S, and uh, you do 20% off. This was fantastic, Justin. Thank you for the time. I appreciate you. Have a great day. Go have some beers and pizza. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Share it Thank on Twitter. <laughs> See ya.